Yo, welcome back. So I've mentioned in a few of these uh, early podcasts that I've done for, for the new show that I my first foray into creating content, interviewing people in the Bitcoin space was with Bobby Lee. Um, that's because we were both living in Shanghai at the time. Bobby was the CEO and co-founder of BTCC, um, one of the most prominent Bitcoin exchanges at the time. And Bobby's actually been a great sport. We've, uh, he's granted me the opportunity to do an interview with him every year since. So we've done five now, and I think I'll actually be speaking with him soon uh, when it comes time for him to unveil his new project. But I, was, I just thought it would be interesting to publish my first interview, just so everybody could see kind of how it all, all started for me in, in, in interviewing people in the Bitcoin space, but also because I just thought it would be interesting to kind of go back in time to this was recorded in the fall of 2015 and just see what the dialogue was like then, what the, the, the dominant narratives were, you know, and just see if there's any kind of nuances in the language that we were using or the type of conversation we were having and how it compared, contrasted or, you know, overlapping similarities to the types of discussions going on today. Also, if you're new to Bitcoin, I think this might actually be a really good episode for you because, because of the time that we're in in 2015 and the fact that this was my first discussion with, with someone in the Bitcoin industry, the whole episode is more about the kind of meat and potatoes of Bitcoin's characteristics, why it's important, um, and the different things that you should be looking at at the beginning of kind of your Bitcoin journey. Nowadays, a lot of new narratives around Bitcoin have emerged and continue to emerge. And so a lot of the conversations I'm having today are looking at kind of, well, things that are happening currently. And I think this episode would be great for someone who's just getting involved, just trying to learn more about the fundamentals, because that's exactly what we discuss. So for that reason, this episode is just a kind of special episode where I'm just republishing the conversation that Bobby and I had in the fall of 2015, when I think Bitcoin's price was around $250, somewhere in that vicinity. And yeah, if you like it, let me know. And over the course of doing new episodes, I'll sprinkle in a couple of the old ones uh, for you to check out as we go along. So that is all. I hope you enjoy the show. Let's do it. Bobby Lee, thank you for joining me. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. So this podcast has uh, been a long time coming. I know we started talking... I think it was the beginning of the year uh, where I reached out to you and see if you'd come on the, the podcast, but through scheduling and life, things got in the way, but finally here we are. And I have to say, uh, I've been looking forward to this a lot. So thank you very much for coming on. That's great. Um, I think before we get going, I, uh, I think I'll give you, you a chance to introduce yourself and the company just briefly to the audience, and then we'll, we'll get it rolling from there. Sure. So I live in Shanghai now. This is where PTC China is headquartered. I've been in China for almost nine years now, moved here at the end of 2006, uh, did a few different things in different tech industries, and I won't go over the, the bio, but mm -hmm. essentially started BTC China two and a half years ago mm -hmm. with my co-founders. So BTC China, we, we, as a brand, as a website, we've been starting since June of 2011. Mm -hmm. We started as China's very first uh, Bitcoin exchange, and over the last four, four years, we've expanded beyond just providing exchange service to many other cryptocurrency Bitcoin services. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, for most of our listeners, they'll probably have heard of Bitcoin before. Many maybe even have their own wallets and have traded or have transacted in Bitcoin. And certainly it's one of the 
hotter areas of quote-unquote technology these days. I mean, it's extremely exciting for a number of different reasons. And for that reason, it's kind of hard for me to figure out where to start here. But just as a history of the company, you, you came, BTC was already operating in some probably very minor capacity before you came on board. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So my two co-founders, they started the website as a part-time sort of hobby mm-hmm. in June of 2011. Mm-hmm. And Bitcoin itself has only been around a little over six years. Bitcoin was invented, you know, uh, as a, it was proposed in a paper published anonymously by uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm-hmm. That was in late 2008. And Bitcoin, the software, the protocol, the system came online in early 2009. Mm-hmm. And for the first two years, it was very, you know, just a few people, maybe less than a dozen. And then by 2011, people started buying it, trading it. And there was a famous exchange called Mt. Gox, Empty Gox, that was based out of Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, that was U.S. dollar exchange. And people started, that was the first world's first Bitcoin exchange. Now, my co-founders realized that, hey, they wanted to play with Bitcoin, but they didn't know how to buy, sell. There was no trading platform for, in China. And it was hard for Chinese people to move money into Japan or move it to Mt. Gox. So my co-founders decided to start a, a Bitcoin exchange in China and called it BTC China. And uh, they launched it in, in June of 2011. Mm-hmm. And back then, I think Bitcoin was trading, you know, on pennies on the dollar. It was just very, very, you know, it was no, you know just maybe a few users. Mm-hmm. It was very early days. And then for the first year and a half, they operated like that. And then by early 2013, I came around. I met them and suggested that we should start a company. We should build this into a big brand, a global global uh, company, mm-hmm. get venture funding and so on. Yeah. So we established our headquarters in Shanghai. I came on as a sort of late third co-founder, mm-hmm. became CEO, and went out fundraising, building the business, hiring people. So we went from just a few part-time people to a staff in Shanghai and started with you know, 5, 10, 20. Eventually, now we're about 75 people. Wow. So what... what- I know from from watching previous interviews on you that you were doing some mining. You, you know, I think maybe you'd heard about Bitcoin from your brother, which is an interesting story that I want to touch on a bit later. But you you were doing some mining, and then maybe the the mining landscape changed, and you realized you know that it wasn't for you, or you couldn't make a run of it. So what led you to approaching BTC? Like, wh- why did you want to get into B- Bitcoin, but get into Bitcoin in China and really? make this your career and make this into the business as it is today. Yeah, so so my brother introduced me to Bitcoin in 2011, in early 2011. Mm-hmm. At the time, it, you know, it was just a concept that was floating around on the internet. People had some, people played with some, they were mining it with the computers. And my brother started mining them in early 2011, and then I got into it. He convinced me to start mining it. I, tried, I was trying it. So I got some graphics card. I actually bought them from him mm-hmm. and set up a small mining rig in the summer, ran, ran it for like three months. So I, that's how I earned my first few Bitcoins that summer. Uh, it was always in the back of my mind, this is a cool technology. I had a full-time job at then working for Walmart in China doing e-commerce. So I so it, it never thought about, you know, doing a startup. It was the farthest, farthest thing away from doing a startup, right? Mm-hmm. So by... By by late 2012, after I left Walmart, I was deciding what's my next career. Should I move to Beijing, take on another corporate job, do you know executive management type stuff, mm-hmm. or should I? I could do a startup. And if I did a startup, I promised myself back then in 2011 I would do a startup in Bitcoin. So that's how I got started thinking about doing a startup in Bitcoin. So the mining gave me a taste for it, but I didn't really didn't really do too much with Bitcoin until until I really committed full time, mm-hmm. and that's when I got together to do to do this. 
Well, it's certainly a bold approach. You know, you decided that this is what you wanted to be into. I'm sure you caught the Bitcoin bug like so many people and you decided, well, you know, go right to the source. Let's let's get in touch with these exchange guys and see what we can yeah. do. And people ask me why China, and I'm like, very simple. I, I was in China, right. <laughs> no other reason. I, right. didn't, I didn't come to China for Bitcoin, but, but uh, yeah, but I was in China. I was living in Shanghai, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do a startup. I wanted to do it in Bitcoin, and that's when I decided to put the three together. Right. So I feel like Bitcoin in general, for for, for whatever reason, kind of has a lot of like mysterious lore associated with it. You know, the the whole Satoshi Nakamoto thing where. You know, I still to this day, unless you've got some breaking news, he's an anonymous character. Nobody really knows who he is. Um, and then it just it's, it's an interesting, as far as startups go, as far as kind of paradigm changing technologies go, Bitcoin seems to have like a lot of interesting lore associated with it. And I guess the reason why I bring this up is because your brother, for people that don't know, is involved in Litecoin. That's right. Right. That's right. So he's actually the creator or founder of, creator of Litecoin. Litecoin. Yes. Right. Yes. So, I, I, before when I was getting ready for this interview, I was thinking, well, I wonder what their like family dinners are like if they're sitting around the table, you know, you know, laughing about global cryptocurrency domination or or what what the nature of those conversations is like. So, if you can sh- just. I know he introduced you to Bitcoin, and that's how, how you got into it. For those that don't know, what is the difference between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, Litecoin, you know, Dogecoin, whatever it might be? Yeah. So Bitcoin is, uh, let's take a step back. What is Bitcoin? Why is that word all of a sudden a buzz in the, in the tech community, in, in, the, in the world, mm-hmm. the media and all that? Why are governments talking about it? Like, what the heck? You know, what, yeah. what's, 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 what's the big deal, right? Bitcoin, you know, if, if you explain it, it's a digital currency. Mm-hmm. More specifically, it's a digital cryptocurrency. Crypto is the, the word for cryptography, which is uh, which, which mathematics for, for security, for how to add, how to make things secret, you know, cryptography. Mm-hmm. Um, so it uses these technologies like, you know, private key, public key. These are things that make communication online secure. How, how do you send a credit card online mm-hmm. through secure communication? through cryptography and all that. So what, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is, in essence, the world's first successful digital currency. And we think, we think currencies we use in our pocket in China is renminbi, CNY, in the U.S. is U.S. dollar, Hong Kong dollar, or euros, or Japanese yen, and so on. We're familiar with currencies all our life, but the currencies we use in the real world, this paper currency is coins and notes, and banks, you know, used to, you know, we keep track of that through bank accounts and all that. Even though we may have online banking, the money we have on our online bank, the amount we see, that's not a digital currency. That's just an online representation of how much I have held with the bank. Mm-hmm. And then how do I get that out? I go to the bank, request a withdrawal, or go to the ATM, put in my ATM card, and get the physical money out. So money is very much physical, even though it can be transmitted digitally mm-hmm. through banking systems and PayPal, Alipay, WeChat Pay, and all that. But Bitcoin is the world's first purely digital currency. What that means is there is no physical instantiation. It, it's it's just from accounts transferred to other accounts. And how is it protected? It's protected by cryptography, uh, a lot of mathematics and computer science behind it. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the other idea is that it's a decentralized currency, meaning that this is a digital asset class that is not issued or controlled by any central bank or by any government in the world. Mm-hmm. So this is a very difficult topic for most people to understand. It's sure. very new. It's very different. Mm-hmm. And that's why Bitcoin is a big deal. 
is because it's so different. It's mm-hmm. like an alien coming on, on onto the world. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, just a, a, an extension of that again for the, I guess for those people that really have only heard of Bitcoin in in passing and in tech news and not a great understanding of it. I think, like you just said, you gave a good foundation. But one of the things I just wanted to make clear, I guess, to people listening, to demystify it a little bit. I mean, the, it would take several hours of a podcast to do that totally. But I guess just to describe, because one of the things I want to get into is the creation of Bitcoin and the creation of fiat money and, and, and value in general and go down that kind of rabbit hole. But just can you explain, because I'm sure you can do so better than me, how uh, mining and the blockchain is, are, are two aspects of the creation of Bitcoin? Yeah. So Bitcoin, when it was, it was invented by this, this guy, he names of Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm-hmm. He proposed in a white paper in 2008. And he proposed, at the time when he proposed it, it sounded ludicrous. How could you have that? Basically, he wanted a, a electronic cash that is purely peer-to-peer, that is not issued or controlled by any existing central organization or government. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to create this new thing out of thin air that's electronic and peer-to-peer. And along with that came anonymity, Along with it came, you know, uh, no chargebacks and very low transaction fees and instant confirmations and all that, all that stuff that make Bitcoin what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Satoshi Nakamoto, he, we still don't know who he is. There, there's some good guesses who he is. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why he wanted to be anonymous. We think it's because this is so revolutionary. It's counter to the system. Mm-hmm. Right, it could be perceived as an attack on the existing system, and the existing system has a lot of stakeholders, Absolutely. whether it's governments mm-hmm. or, or, you know, the whole market, the banking system. So that's why it was a huge risk at the, in the beginning, and mm-hmm. it was worthless in the beginning. Now, back back to your question about the mining stuff. When he invented Bitcoin, the big dilemma was, how do I make it successful? He he thought it was going to be useful, but for it to be useful, it has to be widespread. Mm-hmm. So how do I get it widespread? So if if he held on to all the amount of Bitcoin in circulation, then no one would would get into it. No mm-hmm. one would use it. He would have to sell it, and it would be a, it would be a scheme or whatever. So instead, what he decided was the only fair way to get this into the masses was to create a free lottery system, and that's what we have today. Today, Bitcoin is essentially given out for free mm-hmm. through this Bitcoin lottery system. Right. We call this mining today. The term mining refers to the system. Mm-hmm. And I, I use the term lottery because that's the easiest way to explain to people. Mm-hmm. Essentially, he decided from day one that, hey, we should just let anyone who wants Bitcoin and come and get it. And what, what he did in the program was he made a schedule. He designed a schedule where Bitcoin will be issued over a period of 100 plus years, mm-hmm. 120 years or something like that. And he, he capped the amount of Bitcoins in circulation. He said forever there will only be 21 million Bitcoins. It will be given out in this free lottery system over a hundred different, hundred twenty odd years, mm-hmm. and however, it will not be given out evenly. It will be given out what they called a um, progr- uh, what is it? it basically it, half of it will be given out within four years, mm-hmm. and then every four years, another half of that will be given out. So it goes, it goes something like ten and a half million for the first four years, another. Five million for the next four years, mm-hmm. and the two and a half million for the third four years. Mm-hmm. So that's why, that's why on in January of two thousand nine, of two thousand nine, there were zero bitcoins in circulation. And then what happens every ten minutes, there will be a lottery for fifty bitcoins. Mm-hmm. And the way to participate in the lottery is to do a small computation using computer. And however many people 
participated, the lottery will pick someone randomly, and that person will get that one Bitcoin mm-hmm. or the fifty Bitcoins. Yeah. And that's called the block, the one block of 50 block reward, 50 Bitcoins. Mm-hmm. And so it's been 50 Bitcoins as a block reward every 10 minutes for the first four years. And today we're 2015. It turns out we're already in the second phase. Mm-hmm. So now the block reward is half, is 25 Bitcoins. Right. So to, to, right now, as we're doing this podcast, every 10 minutes that goes by roughly, there's one lottery winner. He or she gets 25 Bitcoins. Mm-hmm. And how do you win the lottery? You use your own computers or mining hardware to do these math calculations. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky, you win the ticket, then you'll get 25 Bitcoins. Right. But as we know, a lot of people are playing the lottery. There are thousands and thousands of machines right now doing computation, mm-hmm. trying to win these lottery tickets and win the lottery. And what happens is the whole thing is called mining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So am I right in saying that, obviously Satoshi had to come up with a way to, in order for it to be a decentralized currency, administration of that of that currency or that technology had to come from you know separate nodes all over the world not one central place so mining seems to be kind of a decentralized administration network where all the different transactions that are coming through with bitcoin these quote-unquote miners are basically organizing these these transactions and verifying them that's right and and they get them rewarded for the verification that they provide yes yes this is the hidden side of it uh which i didn't explain properly is that the mining the action of mining actually helps confirm and make solidify all the transactions so all the trend unlike any other payment network or any other payment system all the transactions for bitcoin all the sends and receives are actually publicly visible Mm -hmm. on the blockchain right so there are multiple websites that can go out there and query and see which transaction was got was sent from when you know for how much from which account to which account so Mm -hmm. that's all publicly visible these transactions are all so-called um formalized by the mining effort so every 10 minutes a new batch of transactions are formalized they're, they're called what they call confirmed by the blockchain. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. So the miners are actually doing work that's good for the Bitcoin ecosystem, which is by confirming transactions. Right. So every time there's a prize for the 25 Bitcoin now, we're actually confirming transactions, making that solidified. And yep. then over time, uh, this is a public record. So every Bitcoin transaction that's ever been sent is now in the blockchain, mm-hmm. foreverly you know, cast in stone, so to speak. Right. And And one of the questions I had for you, because I have a cursory understanding of of how it all works but with mining obviously there's been a dramatic ramp up in mining as as bitcoin becomes more popular and in in greater use and in greater demand does does the the scale up in mining or the competitiveness of the mining quote-unquote industry have any impact on bitcoin value or use or is it just an kind of an outgrowth of popularity of bitcoin of demand for bitcoin there there is it ties into a little bit as well so the mining industry is very interesting it's been it started out, you know, very, very early days, if you will. It was just people, you know, it was just Satoshi, whoever he was, and one other person maybe. They were just using the program. And literally, you could click on a mouse button and say, hey, I want, I want dibs for the next batch of 50 Bitcoins. Right. And if there's only two of, you, two of us, it's either you or me. You know, it's 10 minutes is you, maybe the next 10 minutes is me. And it's very fun. We'd be making hundreds or thousands of Bitcoins a day or two. Mm-hmm. Right? When there are more people, that's when it gets competitive. Right. So in the beginning, it was what we call CPU mining. Literally, you know, notebooks or computers, you just click on it and you get the, the Bitcoins. It's for free. Mm-hmm. Right? The only, the only cost was just plugging your computer and having your software running and paying attention, clicking the mouse. Mm-hmm. Now, over time, that evolved into what they called the GPU mining. So someone figured out, I think in 2010, 2011, you could use graphics cards to do the same calculation at mm-hmm. you know, 10 times the speed. So now people who had graphics cards 
had an edge. You could get 10 times the number of lottery tickets for the same amount of work. Mm -hmm. So you had a higher chance of winning. So everybody went to graphics cards mining, GPU mining. Yeah. That went to FPGA mining. These are field programmable gate array logic chips. And then that went on to ASIC mining. ASICs are application-specific ICs. These mm -hmm. are custom-made hardware chips for that. That was in 2012, 2013. Now we're like fifth, sixth generation. We're like at 14 nanometer, you know, 28 nanometer ASICs. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very competitive. So what used to be maybe your chip could do maybe hundreds or maybe thousands of calculations per second turned into Trillions. millions. Yeah. But so thousands would be kilo hashes. How many hashes per second? Mm -hmm. So CPU, GPU mining, it was in it was in kilo hashes, and by GPU is in mega hashes. So mm -hmm. meaning a graphics chip could do maybe twenty or two hundred mega me million calculations per second, and then it went to giga hashes for ASICs. So the early chips could do maybe ten, fifty giga hashes, billions of operations per second. Then they went to terahashes, which is trillions of calculations per second mm -hmm. now we have something called petahashes which is you know uh, you know quadrillion right hashes per second and then we're going to soon have things above that right so it, it's gone up very very fast it's like an arms race but at the same time it's still only 25 bitcoins per 10 minutes mm -hmm. so how do you justify investing all this hardware to get only 25 bitcoins mm -hmm. well guess what the good thing is bitcoin price value has gone up right that's why it can sustain this level of mining activity so there will be something coming up which is the halving of Bitcoin. But do, do yeah. because all of this mining activity needs transactions, right? The transactions have to be there for the mining to verify to get the reward. Is that right? No, technically not. Technically not. not. Okay. Even if there are no transactions, the mining rewards would still come out. Okay. Yeah, okay. It's, a small, it's a small quirk in the system. And it, it, just yeah. a, a question, another question on the mining. Obviously, the price in Bitcoin has been volatile. We'll get into that a, a little bit later. But with, with the increasing competitive competitiveness of mining yes I mean, the increasing amount of investment required to be competitive do do these dramatic price swings really you know put a crunch a yeah. or put a hurt on these miners because you you know you put, you put a ton of investment into mining let's say at a bitcoin price of 800 usd and then it drops down to what currently 260 or, or in that ballpark yep. absolutely you know then yeah that's a big move so so we we see that as btc china we operate one of the largest mining pools we have about 13 percent of the mining power out there or pool mm -hmm. uh, a mining pool is just where we we get together a bunch of people who want to mine together and, yep. and share the rewards together mm -hmm. what we see is when prices go down what happens for some people out there the electricity cost or hardware cost it's not worth it so they actually turn the machines off mm -hmm. so when when prices come down the the aggregate mining power out there actually goes down mm -hmm. likewise when bitcoin prices go up if it would go to $250 to $500, $1,000 in the next month, what happens a lot more people would be mining. There'd be a lot more hardware mining machines would come back on. This is actually normal. This is actually supply and demand. This is regular economics mm -hmm. because, because we see this in the gold industry as well, when go, and even in the oil industry. When gold prices go down, some of the gold mines just stop mining because mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not worth it anymore. Right. Same with oil, right? If oil prices come down, a lot of oil as well, they just let it sit. Mm -hmm. Whereas if oil prices or gold prices go up, there's more interest and more exploration and more more activity going on. Yeah. So just to bring everyone up to speed, we've got you know the creation of Bitcoin in 2008 and launch of 2009 with Satoshi Nakamoto. It a decentralized anonymous network of you know value transfer using cryptocurrencies, right? Which is administrated by miners in the network. So it's that's the decentralized aspect of it. You can you can send Bitcoin from one place to another almost free. I know there's there's typically some charges involved, 
But I think one of the questions that gets asked a lot is when is Bitcoin going to become mainstream? Now, I know that's a set, there's several variables involved in that, but to bring it around to be relevant to what you guys are doing here, once you have an understanding of Bitcoin and let's say you do uh, ascribe to it a certain amount of value and usefulness, I feel like the getting of Bitcoin is still a gray area for a lot of people because it's not the same as, you know, just you know, going, putting money into your PayPal account and then being able to spend it on, on different merchants. So being that you're in BTC China as an exchange, um, can you tell us how to get your hands on some Bitcoin? And then we'll work on what to do with it once <laughs> you have some. Yeah. So getting Bitcoin is indeed difficult part. And the reason is Bitcoin operates in, in the cloud. It's, it's, a, it's a cyber cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And the money we have in our pocket is very much you know, the current financial system. How do you how do you bridge that gap? That's where the exchanges come in. So what we do is we offer basically we provide a service where people who want to buy bitcoins or sell bitcoins would use the Bitcoin exchange, and you essentially deposit money into the Bitcoin exchange. So in our case, we we accept the deposits in China using uh, get China, taking Chinese renminbi. You send it to our to our accounts, and uh, and then you would get a credit on on your in your account online at btcchina.com, and you would then be able to place an order to buy the bitcoins. Mm-hmm. And then once you have the bitcoins, you would then be able to withdraw it and send it to whichever bitcoin wallet you want. Mm-hmm. Or you could also elect to hold it into our, in our wallet. We have a bitcoin wallet that you could hold your bitcoins in as well. Mm-hmm. And once you have it in bitcoin, then you can send it anywhere in the world to any other person, uh, essentially frictionless. Right. Yeah, and very the, fast. The price of bitcoin varies from exchange to exchange, right? Not, not a great deal, but there is variance, is there not? Yeah, the, the reason is it's a, it's a true market, meaning mm-hmm. that Bitcoin, it's it's a the prices fluctuate minute by minute. You know, in the last five minutes or ten minutes, mm-hmm. Bitcoin price has gone up or gone down up by a little bit, and it, it fluctuates globally. But essentially, it holds steady pretty much throughout the world. Because mm-hmm. if Bitcoin prices are higher in one place by five percent, you'll see people coming in and say selling it at the higher price, buying at a lower price, and it'll it'll balance out over time. Right. So is is it a is it a misconception that bitcoins are hard to acquire and use or because you know, for something to really breach the the mainstream consumer market, it has to be pretty thoughtless, yeah. pretty smooth, right? And up to this point, Bitcoin has had kind of it just the whole picture wasn't clear to people, yes. and maybe that's what's keeping people out. But from your perspective, what what's the for people that are interested that um, see the value in in Bitcoin from a transaction point of view, from an investment point of view, and from a you know political point of view. What's keeping them from crossing the, ca- the chasm to actually having Bitcoin and using Bitcoin? Yeah, we're st- it's a matter of perspective. Compared to four years ago when we started, Bitcoin today is a lot easier to acquire and hold. Mm-hmm. The technology is a lot more mature than four years ago. But compared to four years from now, we're still in a very difficult stage. Bitcoin today is not easily accessible by everyone. That's what BTC China is about. We're all about blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies. So our mission is to make this easy and simpler for everyone. We believe in a future where everyone uses Bitcoin, where digital assets are held by everyone. Today, the vast majority of your audience own assets that are physical in nature, whether it's money in their pockets, whether it's money in the bank accounts or stocks, bonds, real estate, cars, or any other assets they have, whether it's shoes or or purses and all that stuff. They're all physical in nature. But as you know, we're in the digital age already. We're in the internet age. We have email for 20 years. We have websites. And now we have Twitter. We have Facebook. We have WeChat and all that. Our kids and grandkids 
will be even more immersed in the so-called internet, mm -hmm. whether it's through smartphones, Apple Watches, Google Glasses, or whatever. Mm -hmm. We can't even imagine now. So I believe, firmly believe in the future where digital assets is something that's going to be widely held throughout the world. And whether it's Bitcoin or not remains to be seen. But mm -hmm. think about in 20 years from now, when digital assets are widely held, there will be companies out there that will provide services to assist people to manage and invest and protect the digital assets, mm -hmm. as well as converting back and forth into physical assets. Yeah. So that's what BTC China, that's what we aim to do. I, I feel like Bitcoin is one of those technologies that, you know, because it's so groundbreaking, it's because it's so kind of revolutionary that, of course, in the present moment, in the, in the time that it's kind of trying to stake its claim to legitimacy, of course, it's a huge uphill battle. I mean, everyone in Bitcoin, I'm sure, experiences that battle on a day-to-day -day basis. But I feel like, as you were saying, in 20 years' time, we'll look back on this period or we'll, we'll look on Bitcoin and say, well, it was self-evident. Of, of, of course, in the yeah. society we're living in and in the world we live in, of course digital currency was going to emerge. Of course it was going to become an enormous part of our day-to-day -day lives. And all that you know, hard work hopefully won't be totally forgotten by the people that are using it. But I just, I'm, all, I'm constantly interested in, in how just over a period of maybe even 10 years, looking back on things, you know, your, your mainstream layman in, in 10 years' time will look on Bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency is, is predominant at the time and say, yeah, well, you know, obviously uh, I, yeah. need, I need digital currency to do all this amazing stuff that I'm now doing. But in the present moment, it's still a matter of convincing people and, right. and putting in the infrastructure and, and, you know, promoting the legitimacy and making it easy for people and making it accessible I mean, and, and I think that is the realm of revolutionary technologies generally. Yeah, I want to add to that, which is it's, it's comparable to internet or to email 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I, I tell people, people assume this, like you said, like, you, you know, we're, we're as Bitcoin entrepreneurs, we're pushing so hard to make Bitcoin, you know, to make it successful, pushing it, you know, working with governments, with regulators, with mass, with media, with mass uh, consumers for, the, for adoption. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, in some sense, I could care less. And here's what I mean by that. Bitcoin is already moderately successful today. Mm -hmm. We're not at the end of Bitcoin, meaning, meaning it's moderately successful. I say that there's two sides to that coin, which is compared to six years ago, Bitcoin is wildly successful. But compared to 60 years from now, this is the birth of Bitcoin. And the reason Bitcoin is successful today is not because there was people pushing for it. This is not a pump and dump or a Ponzi scheme where there's people out there pushing to succeed and then taking money cash out. The reason Bitcoin is relevant today and successful today is purely because of its attributes and its uh, what it brings to society. Meaning that if, if, if the non-Bitcoin technologies existing today could provide what Bitcoin did, Bitcoin wouldn't have been invented. Right. Bitcoin wouldn't be where it is today. Mm -hmm. It's because the existing systems cannot do what Bitcoin does. That's why people choose and to come to Bitcoin. Yeah. Just like email was 20 years ago, whether it's Hotmail, Yahoo Mail, or Google Mail, why did people use it? It wasn't There was no email coalition or consult, uh, consortium that was out and against the postal mail and stamps and paper and pens. It wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. Email was invented. People had a choice to use email or to send letters by paper and, and pen and put a stamp on it. Mm -hmm. People still have a choice to send mail by stamps, but vast majority of communication is no longer via paper or in postal mail. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is over email. A lot of it is now even over over social media. Right. right? That's how technology has evolved. Sure. So we think Bitcoin will be used more and more. Digital currencies will be used more and more over time mm -hmm. because of what it 
provides in terms of uh, convenience yeah. and security. I'm glad you brought that point up because I, I think kind of what you're talking about in broad strokes is inherent value, right? So the people that recognize Bitcoin, that understand Bitcoin, they, they see or understand maybe subjectively and both subjectively and objectively that it has quote unquote inherent value. But I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to ask you today is because a lot of times people that are adamant or passionate about Bitcoin, they'll have pretty strong opinions about fiat currency and, and, and the existing financial, economic, and banking system uh, today. So I wanted to just, because in a lot of interviews you hear, well, it doesn't have any inherent value. And a lot of people may not understand the world of fiat money today and how it works and, and yeah. how, you know, paper money is really just that these days. It's backed by the confidence of a government and, and nothing more in most cases anymore. So when we talk about value, and I think this is an important consideration that everyone at some point will have to come across if they're going to adopt Bitcoin and use it in their lives. How how sh how should people be looking at the value of, of Bitcoin? Like what, what's Bitcoin's inherent value, you know, in comparison to something like the US dollar and to gold? Yeah, compared I'll to talk those about, to specifically. So, so let's do, I think it's three different things. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, gold, and US dollar are separate things. Let's right. talk about US dollar. US dollar is just a, it, it's a, it's the world's most recognized and most trustworthy reserve currency globally, right? So it's gained that status. But in the end, it's a fiat currency, meaning that the government, United States and the Federal Reserve can decide how much US dollars to print, how to denominate it and so on and to how much taxes collect and all that. So all the policies by the government will affect the usefulness of the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. in, in theory, the government could even cancel the U.S. dollar and go to the U.S. dollar too. And mm -hmm. just, you know, we've seen that happen time and time again in history. Yep. So, so what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is completely different. Bitcoin is not a centrally issued currency. Bitcoin is closer to just you and I having an agreement that these marbles are what you and I will do business in. Mm -hmm. If we have a collection of marbles, somehow we, we have marbles when we were kids growing up or playing with it. We have 15 or 21 marbles. John, you and me, we decide, hey, I want to do business with you over the next 50, 100 years. And we just make an agreement. Marbles are the way to do it. Mm -hmm. And we, there's 21 marbles. You know, We could exchange favors, buy dinners, split bills, take taxis or whatever services and using marbles. Now, as long as the marbles are not easily uh, created such that you cannot cheat and make more marbles, as long as they're recognizable, I, can, I don't see counterfeits, then we can agree to that system. So that's what it is. Bitcoins are just digital tokens that exist as an electronic form. That there's a counter that says how many I have, how many you have, and I can give you some and you can give me some. But unlike the past digital things where whether it's digital photographs or spreadsheets or whatever, in the past, when we shared digital information, it was only sharing. I would make copies for you, and we would both have the copy. Imagine a digital camera. I take pictures. I share with you. Mm -hmm. You can share with 100 people. Now all 100 people have the image. But with Bitcoin, the notion is if I have a token of Bitcoin, once I give it to you, either one or half or point zero point two five, then you would have the amount, and I would have less of that amount. That's what the invasion is. So Bitcoin is just a shared token system, and the value is what we place on it. Mm -hmm. if, you th if we think one Bitcoin is worth one can of soda, that's fine. Maybe 10,000 Bitcoins for one pizza, that's fine. Maybe one Bitcoin for, a, a gold, for an ounce of gold, that's also fine. It's whatever you and, you and I want. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not tied to anything. Just like the, you know, the only denomination of Bitcoin is just Bitcoin. Same with gold. So the reason gold became the world's 
most widely used form of money. You know, in the last 5,000 years, you have different pockets of civilizations that have come and gone. Mm -hmm. But throughout the earth, gold, became, gold and silver became the, the most recognized form of money. And there's a reason behind that. There was no emperor or some lord or some god that says thou shall use gold as a currency. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the case because there was, no, there, was no, there was no global religion. There was no global boss. There was no global overlord. Why did gold become used worldwide? Gold and silver is because of its attributes. The fact that it was scarce, the fact that it was recognizable, it was fungible. You can create coins out of it. You can melt it. You could, you could break one large piece of gold down to 10 pieces, and you could take 10 small pieces of gold, melt it together, and make it into one large piece again. Mm -hmm. Right? You could, find, you could make it pure. You could, it's not easy counterfeitable. It was convenient. It was dense. And it didn't corrode. It wouldn't melt away. It doesn't just self-destruct or, 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 or disappear. So that's why gold became a useful version of currency, a monetary instrument, where I could use it instead of barter. So gold and silver became that. And I argue Bitcoin today is valuable. Why does Bitcoin have a market price of $260 today? Why? There's no Alan Greenspan or Bobby Lee saying Bitcoin has to be $260. Mm -hmm. But rather the market says, hey, it's useful. I use it to trade this and this and that, and that's how it should be. So there's only a certain amount of Bitcoin circulation. There's about 14 million units of Bitcoin in circulation that will eventually hit 21 million over the next 100 years. And more importantly, it has certain attributes that nothing in the world has. It's decentralized. It's limited in quantity. It's hard to get. It's hard to counterfeit. You cannot counterfeit it. It's fungible. You can bring to smaller units and make larger units out of it. And it's permanent. And these qualities give it value. That's why people say, aha, I like that. Right. Look what happened last week. The renminbi fell in value by 2 3 4 5% in a single week. Mm-hmm. So if I made money in China, which I did, you know, it, well, good thing I don't have millions of renminbi in the bank account. It all mm -hmm. fell down by by two, three, four percent. Yeah. But the idea is, it only fell by two, three, four percent in a week. What what's going to happen in twenty years? In the last nine years I've been in China, John. In the last nine years, the amount of renminbi in circulation has increased by three to four x. Mm -hmm. And these are government numbers. Yeah. In reality, it could be higher potentially. Right? So look at how much money has been in the system in the last eight, nine years, whether mm -hmm. U.S. dollar, Japanese yen, or euros. How much money got printed? Mm -hmm. And you have your $1 million in the bank. Is it worth as much as it was 10 years ago? Definitely not. Is that what you want? If you had a $1 million to, to keep to save, most people don't, but let's say you had a $1 million to mm -hmm. save for the future. What you could do with that money today is a lot. You mm -hmm. could go on cruises. You can go to restaurants. You can go take vacations, buy cars. You could do a lot, buy houses. Now, if you put it in the bank or in stocks or whatever, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years for your kids and grandkids, will it still have the same purchasing power? Why did you save the money? Was it, It's for the purchasing power, mm -hmm. right? And if we look at the purchasing power of one currency, the U.S. dollar, let's say since 1913, I believe, at the inception of the Federal Reserve, I think maybe it's down roughly 90% in yeah, terms of exactly, its value, purchasing exactly. power. It's really, yeah. So what, what's, what's really interesting about Bitcoin, and I think, you know, for those people that notice those attributes that you're referring to, it's a no-brainer. They're like, well, yeah. But it's occur what's really interesting is it's occurring at a time when, quote, you know, fiat money, you know, government-issued currency is kind of going in the opposite direction. So... Bitcoin, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of inherently deflationary because the quantity is, is, sure. is, is going down over time. Sure. Whereas governments all around the world, central banks, 
because of the economic climate and, and just because it's kind of inherent in the system that they've created for themselves is inherently inflationary. Yes. And they get to just say, okay, we're going to make a billion of these tomorrow, but trust us, it'll all work out it'll and we'll make out. sure that it'll balance and you won't lose all that hard-earned money that you made for yourself. And I mean, it's a very young system. I, be, I believe 1971 was when right. completely right. untethered from, from a gold standard. It's only been 44 years. And, and I feel like we'll look back on that time and be like, what the, what the know, hell exactly. were they thinking? <laughs> you know? Because, of course, people in, in positions of power and government, and again, I, I, there's no even need to go down any conspiracy track or whatever. It's just the, the, the nature of having that control over something so valuable. Of course, when push comes to shove, you're going to, Shove a little bit and shove a little bit and shove a little bit. And you do that over a period of maybe 40, 50, 60 years. We'll see how long it can go. And it, it seems all roads seem to lead to debasement of currencies. That's and, right. oh, well, we need a new currency. And, and as you mentioned before, throughout history, we've seen currencies die and new currencies take their place with a couple little changes. But what I think what, why people are so excited about Bitcoin is because those attributes that you were mentioning kind of negate the possibility of that happening with with bitcoin you yes. know it, it can't be controlled by one person it can't be issued by one governing body so with, with all that excitement around bitcoin i want to ask you what are the what are the drawbacks what what could happen to derail bitcoin or sorry what actually sorry what are the drawbacks inherent in bitcoin and then we might get to some of the ways that bitcoin may come into some slowdown or come into yeah. some conflict sure so i so to recap the previous point, Bitcoin is only successful because of the new possibility it brings compared to the past regime or the different how it's different from the existing system, the fiat system. So Bitcoin itself is not perfect. Right? Nothing in the world is perfect if you want to be very generic. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin is, uh, is very hard to understand, number one. It took me a long time to understand you know, I have a computer science. I have two degrees in computer science from Stanford, and it took me a while to understand Bitcoin. And obviously, I haven't even gone through and looked at the source code right. to understand the, the the details in there. It doesn't give everyone else much hope. Well, no, no, that's that's not necessarily true. It's just, it's like same thing. I tell people gold. I trust gold. I buy gold. Right. But I haven't looked at gold in an atomic microscope. Mm-hmm. Right. I haven't looked at gold in an electron microscope. I haven't seen the 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 protons. Or, or the neutrons or electrons of gold. Right. I don't have to see it because I could feel I could sort of take that for granted from the chemists and the physicists who understand gold. You know how to get it. You know how to use it. That's yeah, what's and most it's, important. it's solid to me. Yeah. So Bitcoin today is solid to me, even though I don't I, can, I don't get to hold it. Mm-hmm. So the point there is, it took me a good two years before I really trusted Bitcoin to create my own wallets, to put my own Bitcoins and buy Bitcoin, hold it. So now. One of the big downsides of Bitcoin is it's so complicated because it's so different. And it takes it might take a generation or half a generation of time for people to really believe in it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the early days of email and e-commerce. Who would have trusted sending a credit card or buying books through the internet back in 1995? That was 20 years ago. right? This year marks the 20th anniversary of Amazon. You know, but... You know, back then I trusted it because I was, you know, at Stanford, I was in college. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'll do that. But my mother, my my other aunts and uncles, they wouldn't have trusted e-commerce. Right. But today, 2015, yeah, e-commerce is whatever, no problem. Mm-hmm. Right. We routinely send money all over WeChat Pay or, or or PayPal. 
So it might take that long. So that's a downside. The other downside is that um, we'll see. What, what do you have in mind? Anything specific on the downside of Bitcoin? Well, no, I, because I, yeah. I look at Bitcoin and, and I think, wow, the, the possibilities are really exciting. You know, and yeah. as I mentioned before, from an economic, financial, transactional point of view, from a political point of view, I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, there's lots of stuff going on in the world today. And and the, those people that control currency have lots of control over a num- number of different areas. Yeah. So when that when that control is decentralized, then I think uh, it, it creates a lot of exciting possibilities for the people of Earth, shall yeah, we call yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I guess one of the things, in, in today's landscape, as I mentioned before, we've got a couple of different coins, right? Your, yes. Your brother's involved in Litecoin, and there's Dogecoin, and anyone create a, can create a coin, really. How does it, yeah. So are, do you think the future of cryptocurrency, you know, cryptocurrencies is, you know, one dominates, and most of the people of the world transact in that because it has the liquidity, it has the stability of price, et cetera, or do you think we're going into a time, you know, 20 years down the road, as you mentioned, do you think there'll be like coin specific industries where, you know, people transact in certain coins if they want to do X and people transact in certain coins if they want to do Y? I mean, how, how do you see it? I definitely see it's going to be a one dominant cryptocurrency, right. one dominant one. And then the other ones will be on the, on the side. Kind of like these are these are global standards. Think about the keyboard that we have on our computers or on the touch screen. We we all have come to use standardized QWERTY keyboard. Mm-hmm. It turns out there's many many keyboard layouts in Europe. The French use the Azure layout. There's the Dvorak layout, and there's all these different layouts. Some are more efficient. Some can do layout just A through Z. You know you, you know in sequence. Mm-hmm. But the reason we we agreed to do QWERTY is because that's what most people are familiar with. So it's a global standard. Same with the U.S. dollar. Same with many aspects of standardized technologies. So I truly believe Bitcoin is the leading one. It's going to be the leading one. It's the it's the network effect, and it comes back down. Will, will Bitcoin succeed? It comes down to the alternatives. If one day the governments get their act together and provide the same benefits of Bitcoin, then we don't need Bitcoin. I'll say that. I'll be the first to say that. Mm-hmm. If governments can guarantee that my money is truly mine. That what my one million dollars will truly have the same or more purchasing power today uh, in future than today. If they can guarantee that I can send my money anywhere I want, fast with low fees with no interruption, and they, I could do it electronically, heck, I'll take I'll take the government's money. Mm-hmm. And they can also guarantee the money the government will not go bust. Right, right. If the government can guarantee me all these things, I'll take the government's money. Mm-hmm. But look what's happened time and time again: governments go bust. Right, regimes go bust, currencies go bust, money's inflate, inflation can go to hyperinflation, mm-hmm. and they put in controls and they put in controls and requirements on my money and my assets. Mm-hmm. So I argue today we actually don't have freedom. So we have all the freedoms we think we do. And mm-hmm. I know we're t- doing the recording in China, but if you look at the United States or, or Canada, North America, it's very common to talk about the freedom of information, freedom of the right to vote the right to um, a fair trial, mm-hmm. freedom of speech, all these great things, human rights and all that stuff. But what we're missing is freedom of assets. Mm-hmm. Do, do people, do the Americans and in, in the, the free countries, do they actually have, do the people actually have freedom to their own assets? Mm-hmm. And under today's economy or under today's regime, I argue that's not a clear yes. Right. And if, if it's not a clear yes, then there are some interesting philosophical tracks you could go down in terms of broader freedom right because if 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 you 
if, if you don't have access to freedom of assets, then how does that affect your life? How does that affect your day-to-day obligations, right? Because someone else, you, you know, you're putting all this work into acquiring things, into building value, and then you're, you have no control over it, but somebody else is dictating what, what the value of what you've accumulated that's is. That's right. right. That's right. And that, that's where Bitcoin provides a different answer. Mm-hmm. Right, Bitcoin wouldn't be successful today if the existing answer, if the existing providers gave us that freedom of asset. Right. So, so that brings us to one of the questions that's often asked, but I, I have to ask it here because it, it is so relevant. But you know, in conversation, a lot of times you'll you'll hear people talk about Bitcoin and all the great things about it, and lots of the things we've been talking about today. But then when push, when it finally comes to the crux of it, you say, well. It is very disruptive to the global financial system, right? So you, a lot of people would think when it comes to the point where it seems like it might actually, you know, that tipping point, will, will not the major financial institutions and governments globally do everything in their power to resist? Because they understand the importance of their hold on you know, currency and, and financial system in general? Not not necessarily. I think a lot of, I mean, companies are smart. The, the banking, the financial institution, they're smart. They'll, they'll do whatever it takes to make money. They're, they're not in it for the money. They're, sorry, they're not in it for the U.S. dollar. They're in it for the money. Mm-hmm. So whether U.S. dollar stays or euro stays, they'll, they'll just shift to whatever model that allow the companies to survive. Mm-hmm. And I have full faith in that. The, the question is, Many countries have have strong currencies: the United States, the euro, the, the yen, the, the the sterling pound, the renminbi, and so on. But I, I fear for the other smaller countries with their own state issued currencies. Mm-hmm. Those are going to be the first to go. Yeah. Well, right? look, when, look, the, when the when the when the word gets out that oh my gosh, this is a a house of cards. You know these these fiat currencies. They're just printing and printing and printing. Mm-hmm. Look at Argentina. Look at Brazil. Look at what almost happened in Greece. Yeah. Or what could still happen in Greece, sure. right? The euro and all these African countries. I, I grew up in Africa and I saw how how terrible it was mm-hmm. with the inflation and all that. Yeah, uh, th- those were most at risk. Yeah. If they can't provide a compelling currency, then they might as well go to a different hard currency. And I, I I feel again I feel like the timing of this is so like I in twenty years time I think they'll be writing books about just the drama of the times that we're living in right now because this emerging alternative to you know to an a, a currency asset is emerging but is it emerging soon enough for the people that that may need it you mentioned argentina you mentioned pot- potentially greece and at the moment i would the pro- the answer would probably be no right it's not it doesn't have the liquidity it doesn't have the ease of you know access and and use that people would need for it to totally take you know totally replace a national currency but you can easily see how it might in the future, right? Yeah, that's right. So in in the end, people use currency. So people, in the end, it's, as information gets more widespread, you know, you know what the internet has done for us in the last 20 years? The internet has given us freedom of information, a guarantee that information will flow more freely around the world. Mm-hmm. Before the internet, it wasn't that case. So with more information freedom, I think we will have more asset freedom. Mm-hmm. I think over time, people all around the world Will, will realize they have a choice. They can either take their pay, take their wages in some African or South American 
currency that is totally out of whack, mm-hmm. or they could take it in something more concrete, whether it's a U.S. dollar, the renminbi, or something even crypto, mm-hmm. digital currency like Bitcoin or Litecoin or Dogecoin. And being in the position that you are, uh, you know, at, at the CEO of an exchange, a lot is said about the volatility of the price in Bitcoin, and I think you know anybody who keeps an eye on it kind of understands why. But obviously, if, if something is going to uh, develop into something with mainstream usability and, and adoption in terms of a currency, volatility has to be relatively, uh, it, it can't be very volatile, right? So how do you view, uh, let's say over the next 10 years, how do you view the volatility of Bitcoin? I, I don't, it's a matter of perspective. I don't see Bitcoin as being very, very volatile. If anything, Bitcoin's the most stable thing in the world because there's only so much in supply. Mm-hmm. It's it's a different, it's a reverse way of thinking. Think of a barrel of petroleum, crude oil that mm-hmm. they, they 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 get from underground. Oil prices we we know has come down a lot in the last six months, twelve months, and you know to me a barrel of oil, the potential energy in there has remained the same. Mm-hmm. What's happened in the price is just the fluctuations of the economy. Right, it, it's it's really you know when when something goes up and down, are you are you sure that it you know if if I see the sun or the moon go up and down in the sky, is it really the sun and moon going up or is it really me going up and down? Mm-hmm. You know you know what's what's it's a matter of perspective, right? So I don't think Bitcoin is volatile in that sense. I think if I want to hold an asset for long term, I think Bitcoin is a great asset to hold. Whereas sure. currencies is what's happening. What we see is fluctuation currency. Right. So from from China, we live in China. We thought the U.S. dollar went up by five percent last week, mm-hmm. but but that's not the case yeah. from the perspective of an American or a European. The Chinese RMB went down by five percent sure. in the last week. So uh, well, I hear what you're saying, but if we look at let's say a year ago, let's say Bitcoin's high, right? It was like yeah, twelve hundred, you know, something like that. Yeah, now it's two sixty. Now two sixty. So you know, it, let's say someone was earning their wages in Bitcoin, which you know, maybe people in this office uh, do do that, but in, in in those terms, in a short-term non-investment scenario, but you, you know, it's just your wages, and you rely on those wages to pay for your life, even if it's not totally possible in all areas right now with Bitcoin. It it, it would seem that there, and whether it's a result of other currencies, their their volatility, value volatility, yeah. it still seems somewhat volatile as a form of as a wage, right? Yeah. So. If we accept that there's a you know that sort of volatility, do you see that continuing as more people come in, or is uh, it kind of like an ebb and flow, and it'll happen in in, in different periods? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Um, thank you for keeping me on track. That so <laughs> so. The good news is, in the last one year, in the last two years, Bitcoin is a lot more stable than compared to the mm-hmm. early years, mm-hmm. and the reason is we have more exchanges globally. So, so we have a lot of exchanges globally now help balance out the prices globally for Bitcoin. So that's that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. However, that said, I think we're today's Bitcoin price is nowhere near the ultimate value of Bitcoin. For twenty-one million Bitcoins spread amongst seven billion people mm-hmm. in the world of a connected in, in the connected world in a technology society in fifty years, hundred years, it's nowhere near. The four billion worth of circulation, mm-hmm. unless the U.S. dollar is going to be a lot more worth, worth a lot more money in twenty years. My belief is the U.S. dollar is going to be more and more U.S. dollars in twenty years, such that a million dollars will be in everyone's hand easily. Mm-hmm. I think people will be making 
500,000 to a million dollar salaries in 10 years and 20 years. Mm -hmm. By then, do you think Bitcoin will still be $260 per Bitcoin? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be at least 100 times or more. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if, if something... If something, if some asset has to go up a factor of 100 times in a short span of 5 to 10 years, that price increase of the asset will not be linear. It will not be a straight line up. Mm -hmm. It will be very bumpy, highs and lows and highs and lows, and at times it will be way overvalued, at times it will be way undervalued. Mm -hmm. And for it to, in order for it to climb up that 100x curve in a short 5 years or 10 year cycle. And that's what we've seen. Mm -hmm. We've seen Bitcoin come up by 1,000 times in the last six years mm -hmm. or more, yeah, right? There was a famous incident where someone bought a pizza and paid 10,000 Bitcoins for the pizza. Yeah, I'm familiar. Right? That was a great deal for the guy who bought the pizza thinking that he could just get a free pizza for, for 10,000 Bitcoins. Right. Well. <laughs> I, I've, I've had conversations before with, with people because, of course, Bitcoin it has absolutely nothing to do with Silk Road, but it was a method of transacting on, on the Silk Road, right? Yes. And I've often discussed with people, like, what a irony, sort of twist of fate that, you know, people that, you know, are after more unsavory pursuits via Silk Road were kind of forced to uh, acquire this, you know, current, uh, you know, it was probably a pain in their ass. They were like, oh, you know, I got to get this Bitcoin thing so I can get my whatever it is they want to get. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And drugs. they acquire a ton of it when it's really, really undervalued. And maybe it sits in their account or maybe they don't get the drugs they want it. You're they, right. And you're they've right. got a couple thousand Bitcoin. And then a, just a couple of years later, they're like, holy, holy shit, you know, I'm, I'm rich. Was there a case of that? I imagine well, there I, must I heard, have been. It wasn't, story, wasn't me, unfortunately. I, I heard the secondhand story where someone was saying their their friend or something was buying drugs on on the Silk Road, uh -huh. right? The famous Silk Road in the U.S. And the story was they were paying like fifteen hundred bitcoins for the small amount of drugs, and we're like, oh my gosh, fifteen hundred bitcoins! If only you had saved it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> because fifteen hundred bitcoins today is worth hundreds of thousands of sure. US dollars. I'm sure there's right? got to be some. And and same thing. Like I recently went to a friend's wedding, and I'm going to give him uh, one bitcoin as a wedding gift. Mm -hmm. And then down the road, people say, "Oh my gosh, Bob, you gave one bitcoin to your <laughs> crazy? Why did you do that? It's like yeah. so much money." You know? Yeah. Well, that that brings me to another interesting thing that that I've heard talked about, and that is. The, the early adopters of Bitcoin, you know, and, and, and it, it kind of seems like a scenario like, okay, it could really pay off or some people could really get burned. But let's, let's just assume that everything we're talking about, although there'll be bumps in the roads, ups and downs, we are going into a future that is going to have Bitcoin as a fundamental component of uh, value exchange, currency, etc. Agree. What about all these early adopters, you, yourself included, me, unfortunately, not as much as I would like. But, you know, we, we know a lot of people, or, you know, that, that were in early days of Bitcoin that have acquired a lot of Bitcoin. Do you think they're just going to hold on and wait for the, the golden chariot to arrive? Or what do, you, what do you make of the potential billionaires out of, coming out of early Bitcoin adopters? Well, it's, it's bound to happen. There will be billionaires regardless of whether Bitcoin succeeds or not. Mm -hmm. So we in, in a capitalist world, you know, people... The world will not be fair, meaning, you know, people make their bets, do what they want, and then some people will be worth more, some people will be rich, some people will be poor. Mm -hmm. And that's a reality even before Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? Whether we're talking about the Stanleys or the Vanderbilts or the, the you know, the Rockefellers mm -hmm. 100, 200 years ago versus the internet entrepreneurs 10, 20 years ago, right, who made billions in the internet sector, and maybe they'll be billionaires made out of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's just the way it is. So yeah. there's no right or wrong. It's just 
It's just the unfair world of capitalism. Right. And now I wanted to ask earlier, but does the alias Satoshi Nakamoto, is, does he have a, a big, a certain portion of Bitcoins? I, I, I'm not sure. He Supposedly. Suppose he has like between one to, yeah, over a million Bitcoins, something like so that. So when they were first issued, he just... Yeah, he was the only one doing the lottery. Gra- gra- oh, he, so okay. he he so was he was just minor, he was right. like, hey, every bitcoin, you know, doo, 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 he would he would just get all the right. all the lot win all the lottery. It was fifty bitcoins a piece each ten minutes. Right. So each day is about seven thousand two hundred bitcoins a day. So for the first day, if no one else played the lottery with him, it was him two, seven thousand two hundred bitcoins. Day two is another seven thousand two hundred bitcoins, and then slowly he got more people involved. Hal Finney was one of the early people who was corresponded with him, and he, you know, eventually became from one to two to four to eight people, mm-hmm. and that's, that's how it started. So whoever that person or people are are probably quite happy with the way Bitcoin has been turning out. I think it's. I would guess it exceeded their initial expectations. <laughs> yeah, sure, very sure. much. Um, now with with Bitcoin, I mean, it's we we on this podcast we talk a lot with tech founders and people in the startup community and. It goes without saying that in general, it's a very fast-moving landscape, uncertain. You're, you're Typically with new technologies, with revolutionary technologies and services, you're coming up against the status quo, which means it's an uphill battle in terms of regulations, in terms of you know many different aspects of the business. So you, you are in one that I would say is probably more revolutionary than anyone I could currently identify. I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, a new currency, which is... Big, big deal. Big deal. So mm. how do you, with BTC China, stay on, on top of the constantly moving landscape of, of Bitcoin? We, in the end, the good thing is we are not, we don't, rep- we don't solely represent Bitcoin. We're not Bitcoin, the company. We're not we are one we're just one player in a whole ecosystem that's trying to push humanity forward mm-hmm. right the whole ecosystem is all digital cryptocurrencies all bitcoin companies out there who have seen the light who say this is good technology and how do we make this available to more people out there mm-hmm. what we want is to educate people in the world to say hey now you have an alternative digital assets are a way for you to you know to to diversify mm-hmm. to hold to spend to to transfer whatever you want you have this choice now. And uh, di- different companies in our ecosystem do different things. So we started as an exchange. We, we're doing much more than that. We, mm-hmm. We've done merchant processing. We've done wallets. We've done mining pools. We've done, uh, we, we're launching a new uh, forwards sort of f- futures tra- uh, trading platform. Mm-hmm. So we'll do more and more of these services to bring more digital cryptocurrency uh, solutions to the world. Mm-hmm. And, Yes, we have to meet with regulators. Yes, we have to comply with the law. Yes, we have to help answer questions and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a this is part of evolution, right? When the internet came about, it faced a lot of challenges as well. Yep. A lot of opposition, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of technological challenges, and a lot of adoption challenges as well. So it, it comes with a game. This is what revolution technology is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're, we're we're here for the long haul. And a lot has been made of exchanges and other Bitcoin companies that didn't make it, right? And it, it, it has kind of transferred an aura on, over Bitcoin, unfortunately, that I guess increases the hesitancy with a lot of people getting involved. So whether it's an exchange or a, or a wallet uh, company or a number of different Bitcoin companies have, 
I guess the, the, the struggle has been insurmountable and they've had to close up shop or, or whatever. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because it, it's so relevant, you know, we, we know a lot of people know about the MT Gox That's right. the fiasco. So what do you look for from a consumer point of view in an exchange that you can trust, in, in a place that you can be confident in transacting in and to say, okay, I'm, and as you mentioned, you're now offering a number of different services, which hopefully we can touch on uh, before we close. But, you know, w- what can a consumer look for knowing that they, they can't come in here in the office and see behind the veil and really know what's going on? How does, it, how does a consumer know to trust an exchange? What, what, what should they look for? This is, this is going to be part of the conversation that's going to happen in the next five years as, as our industry goes through uh, regulation. I firmly believe that because Bitcoin is real, because Bitcoin, Bitcoin is here to stay, governments are already taking notice and governments will take notice and start regulating it. The state of New York in the United States is the first to, to do this. They've uh, come up with Bitcoin regulation called uh, BitLicense. So they require companies that do business in New York with New York people to obtain a BitLicense, mm-hmm. so to speak. And we're going to see that more and more in different states in the U.S. as well as different countries, including China. Because I firmly believe that in order for a healthy system where good, honest companies can do good, honest business in this realm, regulation is important to keep the good from the bad, uh, the, the, the bad actors, mm-hmm. so to speak. So over time, it will be very clear to consumers who are the good actors, who are licensed, who are regulated, who have reputation, who has investors, who has you know, hired a strong management team, put good thinking behind it, providing great services mm-hmm. versus the bad actors who are here for the short term, you know, for hit and run, for the, you know, for the Ponzi schemes and so, so, forth, so forth. And of which there seems to be, unfortunately, a few of those actors, especially yeah, there are, there China, are, right? there are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's why, why do you think banks and investment banks, why are they regulated? Because you don't want people coming up and setting up fake banks. Right, right. Right, you, you can't afford that. Sure. You might have fake Apple stores, but you can't afford having people coming up and setting up a bank that's here today and gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You don't want a bank of Xu Jiahui that all of a sudden disappears after three weeks because they took in like $50 billion worth of deposits. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, one of the things a lot of people are concerned about is that through that process, the, the legitimizing the uh, acting in concert with regulatory bodies in order to, to be more dependable, more secure from the consumer standpoint – Will Bitcoin have to give up some of the attributes that make it so uh, appealing? So in, in yeah, one, one of question. the ones that stands out is anonymity. Will Bitcoin be yeah. able to maintain that or will it have to comply with know your customer standards and, sure. and things of that nature? So my answer is, is very simple. Bitcoin, so, so we as a company, BTC China will have to you know, keep adjusting our processes to comply with the, with the laws and regulation. Mm-hmm. So we'll do that, of course whatever requirements we're required to do in terms of KYC, collecting information from our users and so on. Mm-hmm. But you know what? For Bitcoin, it's not going to change. It, it, actually, here's what I'm saying. Bitcoin is its own beast. It's an open source software. It's globally run across you know multiple thousands of computers and nodes. Mm-hmm. It's out of control of any single person. You know, Even though we're one of the most famous, largest Bitcoin companies, we cannot change bitcoin mm-hmm. we, we have i even as ceo have no right to take away the anonymity feature of bitcoin right nor do i have the right to change the number of bitcoins to make it 25 million or make it 42 million mm-hmm. i cannot arbitrarily say oh you know i'm a nice guy why don't you why why don't we have the bitcoin network give me three more million worth of bitcoin i i can't do that sure 
right? Because because it's decentralized. So regardless of what the governments want or what the company CEOs want, Bitcoin will not significantly change mm-hmm. in that sense. It'll only the companies that are acting as an interface between the customer and Bitcoin will yes. adopt how yes. they we as, adapt. Yeah, we yeah. as companies always have to obey and abide right. by the rules of the country that we operate in. Mm-hmm. So companies will always will be the ones that change and adopt. Yeah. But Bitcoin is its own thing. And in, in terms of BTC China, is it only for RMB uh, purchases of, of Bitcoin? So, I mean, is it, is it basically confined to people in China? Uh, it's not confined to people in China, but primarily we do business. We, we operate. That's how we started four years ago. So we operate primarily out of the RMB market. Mm-hmm. We, for certain special VIP customers, we're accepting uh, foreign currency deposits for, for certain transactions. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's, a lot has been made of why Bitcoin is so popular in China. Because yes. The, the, if, if, if more so than perhaps anywhere, those attributes that we discussed earlier are, are even more in demand uh, here as a result of the way things are, are, have been put in place. But can you just comment on, on why Bitcoin has, been so, has become so popular here and how BTC has kind of addressed that demand and, and what you see moving forward for yeah. BTC? B- Bitcoin trading is what's been most popular in China. Right. And Bitcoin trading, uh, from the beginning of our company, from 2011, that's when we introduced Bitcoin trading in China. Mm-hmm. I think the Chinese people, due to the, the, the state of the economy and all that, I think, you know, China has gone through phases. You know, there was a phase of all these boom cycles, whether it's real estate, whether it's the stock market, mm-hmm. whether it's a foreign currency and, and Bitcoin trading. So so 2013 was a watershed year for Bitcoin trading in China. A lot of people came online to trade Bitcoin. And subsequently, PBOC issued some Bitcoin rulings, and that scared a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, potential what the central bank might do. But overall, Chinese consumers, we still have a large contingent of Bitcoin traders in China that are trading Bitcoin, what we call speculating, speculative trading mm-hmm. for profit. And that's how it is. You know. But that's good for you guys, right? Oh, it's good for us because, because we have more a lot of transactions liquidity. Absolutely. Exchange, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So unfortunately, in China today, not, there still is not a lot of people using Bitcoin to buy things, you know, in the physical merchant setting or mm-hmm. electronically. Mm-hmm. So that has not taken off yet. Probably yeah. that's more prevalent in Europe and North America. Right. So what I predict is Bitcoin will be used differently. Because Bitcoin has, you know, eight to ten really strong attributes, mm-hmm. these attributes will be these features, if you will, will be appreciated differently by different segments of the world population. Because Bitcoin actually truly crosses all all global boundaries. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not language specific, it's not culture specific, it's not geo location specific it's not political specific right so it transcends all boundaries of politics language cultures location and so on Mm -hmm. so different countries different groups of people will appreciate different features of bitcoin more so than others and that's what bitcoin will be used differently in different parts of the world right um now in terms of there's one question i have to ask you please and i watched a, a, a presentation you gave before and you're a bit hands-off in the answer because it is not the domain of, of BTC China. But you do have probably some insight into this, so I wanted to ask. Nothing earth-shattering, but we, we all know that China has certain controls on the inflows and outflows of the currency, right? Yes. So am I right in assuming that part of potentially the, the popularity of, of Bitcoin trading in China was, was a, used as a means to you know, repatriate or, or convert 
you know, currency from one to the other? For, for foreign currency, right? How yeah. to basically your question is whether Bitcoin has been used in China to subvert the foreign currency controls. That's right. Right. So my honest to God answer is I don't think that's been a big use case. Mm-hmm. I do not think that's been a big use case. Mm-hmm. In small cases, maybe. Maybe if someone had a few hundred, a few thousand RMB, they try to convert to US dollars, yeah. they would do that, mm-hmm. buy into Bitcoins and then exit out into a different currency and different exchange abroad. Mm-hmm. Sure, there's probably thousands of dollars in that sense going probably a few cases. We're not talking about the millions of dollars of huge amounts. We're not talking about a truckload of money buying into Bitcoin, exiting China. Mm -hmm. I truly don't believe that happened. And the reason I say that is simple because there are many easier ways to get money into and out of China than to go through Bitcoin. Mm Mm-hmm. So the even though the Chinese foreign currency uh, laws only allow fifty thousand U.S. dollars worth of conversion in or out per per annum per mm-hmm. person, many companies individuals have found many many other loopholes mm-hmm. to surpass that amount, mm-hmm. and none of those involve Bitcoin. Right. So the people who did it with Bitcoin are just doing it for convenience, for testing purposes, or they thought it was cool. Right. But with any yeah. luck, as we've been discussing this this whole time. Hopefully, the, the, with Bitcoin, the usage of Bitcoin will become easier and easier. So yes, again, I'm, not, right. I'm not, not promoting that, doing that with your, with your Chinese RMB, but at some point in the future, and this may change based on whatever you know, regulations come down through China, but ho- you know, with, with it becoming more easy to use, maybe that will be something that is a bigger use case in the future. That's right. Who knows? That's right. Yeah. Um, Bobby, I know I asked you for an hour today. I want to be respectful of your time. I've got a couple more questions. Are you good for another 10 minutes? Yes. Come. Cool. So I want to uh, ask you more about what BTC China is doing because uh, a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of Bitcoin companies obviously operating out there. And I think there's still a lot to be determined to how to, how to operate and structure a, a, a Bitcoin company. What's the best balance between the, the services and attributes that consumers want versus you know, fees and charges and all that kind of stuff? So you, you, you touched on it briefly a few minutes ago, but can you kind of give me the whole rundown of what's in the BTC China wheelhouse right now in terms of services that you guys are working on? Yes. So we started uh, four years ago as an exchange. So since then, we've launched, besides Bitcoin, we've launched Litecoin trading as well. And um, kind of pressure from the brother to do that. One. <laughs> yeah, Charlie encourages <laughs> us to do it. Charlie, as you know, is the creator of Litecoin. Right. He, did, he created that uh, in late 2011. Actually, I didn't know until much later. I did, I didn't know he created Litecoin until much later. In fact, how is, think, that, po- I, how is that possible? You guys not it, no, we, close we, contact? No, no, no. no. We, well, he lives in the states. I live. He lives in California. I live here. Right. We, we talked, but but it's not something. It wasn't a big deal to him, and it wasn't something he bragged about. Like I'm the creator, you know. So one day. I think it was after I created, I, I joined BT China. And one day he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, Litecoin, that's me." I'm like, "What do you mean, is you?" I mean, I, I thought, I thought it meant that he was one of the contributors. Uh-huh. He's like, he created. It. I'm like, oh, I thought, and then I thought he was one of the five or six people who created. It. And he he told me, "No, he created it." I'm like, "What do you mean he created it?" You know, I didn't realize until much later that. And then I, I, and finally he told me, "Yes, he was the one who created it." I was like, "Wow, really?" So, so, so he must be sitting on a bunch of Litecoins hoping well, that things go well, I, right? You know, we, we both wish he was, but uh, he, he, he sold a whole bunch at like 10 cents, 20 cents really? back then. I'm sure yeah. he's got, so Litecoin's I'm sure he's got a little purse somewhere. But. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he, he cashed out a little bit. Yeah. He, I think he uh, – anyways. So, um, so 
so that's the thing, right? Litecoin was created, his vision was that it should also be, he didn't want to pre-mine it. He didn't want to hold any back for himself. So when he created, because in the summer of 2011, when we both were mining, we saw these other crypto, uh, cryptocurrency coins come out. They were all copycats of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. One I distinctly remember was called IO coin. And uh, anyway, so we were mining them. And then he said that some of it was not fair because they pre-minded. The, the the founder right, creator held right. back some for himself, so it was a Ponzi and you can scheme. see that with like yeah, if, yeah, if I launched a coin, you could see if you could I see held that back. someone had already stole a bunch, or right. not stole but 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 kept, yeah, kept sequestered them for yeah, themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Charlie said that for Litecoin, you know, be fair. He he announced it ahead of time to everyone who wanted to pay attention. He said, "Hey, we'll start on this date, and everyone can join the lottery on the same time." So he so Charlie, you know, joined in on the lottery on the same day along with everyone else. So it was a fair. Whoever got the lottery ticket won the first 50 Litecoins and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So he created, he changed the rules a little bit. So there's 84 million and every two and a half minutes. So slightly different from Bitcoin, but still pretty much based on the same concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, so, got, you guys aren't battling it out at, at family dinners, right? Oh, no, 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 not, no, not at all. <laughs> we're, we're, we're really, yeah, really, really good. Right. Yeah, he's, he's a, I have a sister as well, but we're really close. Is she, is she involved in any sort of crypto, she's, crypto, she's doing her own startup, but she's not doing any cryptocurrencies okay. yet. I, was, okay. I tell you, you should try something cryptocurrency. She's not doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what was your, sorry, what was sorry, your question? You, you were, was about, you, we're asking about, about, um, oh yeah, BTC yeah, for BTC China. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so uh, we have our own wallet. Uh, we used to call it Picasso, and now it's called Just Pay Wallet. Mm-hmm. So this will allow people to hold their Bitcoin, transfer, send Bitcoin, mobile app, Android, and iOS. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also do uh, merchant payments. So we now allow merchants in China, both online and offline, to accept Bitcoins mm-hmm. through our system. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have an exchange to help with the liquidity. We uh, we also launched a mining pool. We did that uh, last year. So we're now the world, I think, number four largest mining pool, mm-hmm. about 13% of the world's uh, hashing power. So does, this that, means does that mean you also have mining power that you're operating somewhere? We, we, we don't. We have very small, just 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 small amount for testing. Right. But uh, basically, these are customers, miners in China or around the world who want to join this mining pool to mine together. The mm-hmm. idea of joining mining pools, you... you you diversify your, your chances of winning. It's kind of like instead of holding on to 100 lottery tickets, mm-hmm. which may or may not win, you put in your 100 lottery tickets and you pull it together with another 1 million. And now as long as a whole pool wins, you get a fraction of it. So you you have more guaranteed payout. Right. So and, that's what people want. And what's BTC China's role in that? Are you like we, hosting we, it? We, yeah, we're hosting it. We're organizing a mining pool. This is our BTC China pool. And people would, 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 in, would participate in that because they trust... BTC Absolutely. China. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We're, we're we're one of the earliest, uh, most trusted brands on in the ecosystem. Right. Yeah. Right. So we have a very large, uh, very very trust. You know, we have very really awesome uh, customer base. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got the mining pool, the wallet, the exchange, of course. Yes. And then we're just launching, just as we speak, last week we're 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 testing our uh, publicly launching our uh, new Forge contract service. It allows people to trade Bitcoin using margin, sort of like a commodities futures type of trading. Yeah. So that's going to come online in uh, in the next few weeks. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what a, at BTC China, I mean, I don't need you to give me any, actually, what is, if you can share, what's the transaction volume, the average transaction volume in like a, a week on BTC China? Is that confidential information? It's not confidential. Or? It's publicly listed. Right. So we, we have anywhere from a few tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins traded per day. Right. So these are Bitcoins, buy, sell, buy, sell. So in, in yeah. U.S. dollar amounts, what, what are we looking at? Oh, gosh. This is in the, uh, what's the, uh, you know, in the millions, mm-hmm. probably, depending on depending on the day. So it right. really depends on the volatility of Bitcoin. Usually when Bitcoin prices go Go sky high, uh, then, 
or if it goes high or goes down a lot, then the activity goes up a lot. Right. So anywhere from you know five million U.S. dollars worth of activity to fifty or hundred million, we've seen really big days in the past. Right. Yeah. Uh, just a couple more questions for you, then I'll let you go. Um, with we, I heard you mention something that BTC China launched maybe a few months ago now, but it was some sort of oh yes, get, getting being able to like write your name in that's the blockchain. Right, that's right. That's right. Like yeah, I didn't mention that. It's a small. It's a small fund service. It's called Forever. Uh huh. Forever is a service that's very innovative, uniquely BTC China. We're the first to provide it. It's a service that allows anyone to now write your own custom message into the Bitcoin blockchain. And the reason it's called Forever is because anything you put into blockchain is forever. Mm-hmm. The idea is that blockchain is, is, is maintained by a global network of thousands of computers that maintain the Bitcoin blockchain. That's a source of truth for all of Bitcoin transactions. Imagine writing your own message in there. In fact, in fact, we should do that. Mm-hmm. We should, we sh- after a podcast, we should go memorialize our, our recording and say, you know, John and Bobby recorded the podcast today in Shanghai, Tech in Shanghai, you know, August, whatever. And Bobby, that Bobby be, gifted John like 100 Bitcoins or whatever. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then once it's written in the blockchain, then anyone in the world can go blockchain and, and look at that block and they'll say, they'll say that same string of text. Yeah. It could be whatever language, Chinese, English, French. You just write whatever you want. But there's a, there's a space limit how, much, how many characters you can use. Mm-hmm. And that's called our forever service. That, we charge 100 mil Bitcoins for it. And we think it's great value because you can't get it anywhere else. It's yeah. like... It's like it's like in some sense like graffiti. You could you could you could once you write it there, it's forever there. It's fascinating, yeah. and it just it just kind of sheds light or sparks like um, sparks your brain to think about the possibilities of both Bitcoin and usages of the blockchain. I know a lot is made about the blockchain technology itself. That's right, and what you know what can be done with it in the future, and what probably will be done with it. And this service is certainly a a fun you know little uh, service to provide people, but. Well, I have to save that for another podcast. So hopefully you'll come on in, in, a, in a few months. And I'm sure Let's BTC China will be in a completely different stage and, and offering lots of new stuff. And I'm sure Bitcoin in general will be in a different stage. So it'll be great to have you back That'd on. That'd be then. great. So just a couple more questions for, uh, as you know, we, 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 a lot of our audience are entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs, many of whom are in China, many of whom are around the world. And I just wanted to get your advice to them. You know, you're a successful entrepreneur here in China, you're educated in the US, you're in an exciting, emerging, fast-paced industry, revolutionary industry, which is basically what makes all these entrepreneurs froth at the mouth. You know, people want to be involved in something that can change the world, that can be financially rewarding, that can be engaging, but it it often gets romanticized a lot uh, and all you hear about is funding rounds and uh, IPOs and stuff like that. So, you, you, you're living the real deal um, and you're succeeding at it. So I just wanted to see if you could give a piece of advice to the listeners out there who may have an idea, may want to get involved, may not be satisfied with the work they're doing and want to make that leap but aren't necessarily sure what or how to do it. Yeah, so, so doing a startup is great. This is my first time really at, at the captain's seat, you know, doing a startup, running it as a, as a CEO, as a co-founder. And the... The the challenge so so first of all people out there you know I, I worked I worked jobs I worked in industry for ten fifteen years before I did my own startup you know some people do that some people do startups right away out of college I don't think there's a right or wrong answer it's just what you want to do at what what mood you have at what point in life mm-hmm. uh, what I would say is if you were to run a startup to do a startup the, the most difficult thing or the, the 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 most important thing is to find the right partner and also to, to hire the right people mm-hmm. right because 
when I was, you know, I was in management for many years, and when we were hiring, when I worked with large companies, we were hiring employees, right? Because, but at a, as a startup, technically we're hiring employees, but we really want to hire is we want to hire people who are really self motivated, people who are really entrepreneurial, right? We we know about the ideas of you know. You know, having communication skills, having self motivation, but I only knew about these in the context of a large company. Now that I'm running my own startup, these means these mean so much more to me now. Mm-hmm. People who are self motivated, people who have good communication skills, people who have great attitude, go do it attitude. To me, these three phrases mean so much more to me today when I hire people. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is that I want to bring in partners who really want to go out there and fight and really win. Mm-hmm. Help the company succeed, and not just sit there at the office from nine to five and get a paycheck. Right, that's a huge difference, mm-hmm. and that's a challenge. How to, how to motivate people to do that? How to motivate? How to bring in the candidates that do that, and also, also how to motivate our existing team members to do that? So, I guess part of you know that advice might translate into saying, if you are considering getting into a startup or being an entrepreneur, make sure you're coming at it with you know, a genuine attitude and with, you know, a certain set of expectations. So if you're a type of person that, you know, is passionate about whatever your skill set or whatever your cause is and you're willing to work your ass off for it and you're not expecting immediate payoff, then those are probably some of the right attributes and and mentalities to go into this with, right? Yeah, absolutely right. So my biggest, uh, I'm I'm really lucky that I'm doing a startup in something I really love and believe in, which Mm -hmm. is Bitcoin. Yeah. So never do a startup just because you want to be founder or CEO. Only mm-hmm. do it because the field that you're doing it in is something you truly love. And mm-hmm. in that case, it doesn't matter what role, whether it's a janitor or the front desk receptionist or the VP or the CEO. It doesn't matter because mm-hmm. then you're really doing something you believe in. Yeah. yeah. Bobby, I know we're going to have you on again in a couple months. But where is last question, where is BTC China in, let's say, five years' time? No, 10 years' time. In I, 10 years' time. Yeah. It's very simple. We will be recognized as the Bitcoin company for for everyone we Glo- will, globally yes we will uh we have global ambitions we want to be your bitcoin company mm-hmm. in every sense of the word we want we believe everyone will use bitcoin everyone will have digital assets we will be the provider of blockchain technologies and cryptocurrency services mm-hmm. it's all about it's all about these things Getting goosebumps. <laughs> All right, Bobby, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. I know we went a bit over, but like I said at the beginning, I could talk about this stuff for three or four hours. So I, I appreciate the time. I hope we didn't uh, overdo it. Uh, where can people get in touch with you or interact with you? Is there any you know information you want to put yes. out there, web address? Yes, email? so, our, so our, our website is btcchina.com. Mm-hmm. My Twitter handle is Bobby C. Lee, B-O-B-B-Y-C-L-E-E. Okay. Yeah. And for people that may be interested in joining the team or asking you more questions, yeah, one, send one of those email two. to jobs at btcchina.com. Jobs at btcchina. Cool. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.